listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 218. In this edition, we are talking to Joe Grady, General Secretary of the University and College Union in the United Kingdom, about the labor movement and struggles for gender justice in the UK and beyond. Before we get started, just a quick word on our upcoming Belabored Live event. It's going to be a collaboration with Stephen Pitts of Black Work Talk on April 5th from 7.30 to 9 o'clock Eastern Time. It's called Black Against Amazon, and we're going to talk about the Amazon struggle and the state of the Black working class. We're going to focus on the largest organizing drive at an Amazon warehouse to date, involving several thousand workers at the Bessemer facility, the vast majority of whom are African-American. You can learn more about the event and register at descentmagazine.org. This also means that our next episode will be not two weeks from now, but three weeks from now. It'll be on April 9th, and it will be a rebroadcast of the live event. But we do hope to see you on April 5th so that you can ask us questions and make comments in real time. And lastly, if you want to see more events like this, please don't forget to support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash belabored. Now back to the show. First, the news. Taxi drivers in New York City have been through hell over the past year. On top of getting hit with the pandemic and falling into massive debt, as well as facing a spate of driver suicides over the past few years, cabbies say they are now about to get raked over the coals by Mayor Bill de Blasio. Cabbies aren't just suffering because they've lost income due to competition with Uber and Lyft and not being able to drive during the pandemic. They've also been mired in debt because the market for taxicab medallions a unique licensing scheme in which the value of cabbies' livelihoods is based on a restricted market for tokens of ownership, crashed a few years ago. The mayor's proposed plan for a financial bailout for the taxi driver workforce is premised on a partnership with a hedge fund called Marblegate. This program, according to the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, would tie drivers to usurious loan terms and sink many even further into predatory debt. The Taxi Workers Alliance has been holding protest rallies with drivers for nine days as of this recording in order to pressure the mayor to negotiate a better deal with cabbies that would allow them to bring their debt down to sustainable levels without being left destitute. I spoke with Muhammadu Aliyu, a member of the alliance who has been driving a cab for about 20 years, about the dire financial situation facing cab drivers today. How has the past year been for you? Have you been surviving? I'm dying. I'm not surviving. It's uh, no question. No surviving. I'm I'm dying now. This this situation is just desperate. I've been saying this to anyone that called me. There is no day I do not think about committing suicide because this is not supposed to happen to start with. And they allow this thing to happen, and the whole world knows about what we're going to. And as I'm talking to you, nothing is being done to fix the problem. I came to this country in 1994 in pursuit of a better life. And that chance was given to me when in 2004 I was able to purchase a medallion. This license that, that, that gives me a full right to do the taxi work within the five borough of New York City. And I was living that dream. It was perfect. Until 2013, 2014, when Uber comes in the market. But even before that, New York State, New York City, they allow predatory lending. They went ahead, they inflate the value of the medallion, and then uh, they was looking on the other way when they 
the brokers, the bank, the lenders was uh, were misbehaving. They just push you, push you, push you to get this unexisting loan, this fake, this fake loan. And here we are today, after the city allow, predatory lending, they allow Uber to come to the market. We only 13,000 New York City cab. They allow over 100,000 cars within New York City to do exactly the same job. In 2013, the medal was over $1 million. This is New York City that, that sold it for $1,350,000. New York City himself at the auction, the last auction that city had. So how in the world? You go out, you sell this medallion, you inflate the value, you sell the medallion over one million, and 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 the, the next day you give it for free to Uber. So the question is, what do I do with my loan? Because uh, the medallion don't have no meaning no more. You only need uh, to have uh, a, a plate, a taxi plate, buy any car, and you can do the same job as, a, a, as me being a medallion owner. Today, you give me 70,000 cash, I will go right now to the city. Before I make it home, I will go home with a medallion. 632,000, that's what I owe. By 2016, I lost... I lost close to 40% of uh, my income. 2018, I lost 60% of my income. This is too much pain. Anytime I talk about this, I'm full of emotion because I got my kid. I have a little one, he's two years. I have another one, four years. He's six years old. And I have a grown up, 27 years old. I have to take care of him. I really don't believe this is America, you know, because I know this country. Uh, this thing may be delayed, the justice may be delayed, but I'm confident it won't be denied. We only need 75 million to get out of this mess, to get out of this, uh, this crisis, to get out of this monster, because nine of our fellow driver committed suicide. Related to this, more people did die because of this crisis. So we have a campaign. We have a plan which says to the lender, reduce your loan to 125 757 a month at a 4% fixed rate for the next 20 years, and that we can have our life back. Even we lost our retirement, our investment, at least we can get our life back. This is all we are asking. That was Mohamedou Aliyu, veteran cabbie and member of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. There's been a lot of talk happening around the PRO Act and specifically the effect that it would have on freelance writers lately. As a freelance writer myself, I wanted to make sure we got this right. So I called up Brandon Magner, an attorney and the author of a very good newsletter, Labor Law Light, to explain it to me. So to start off, um, can you explain what the ABC test is that is included in the PRO Act? 
Yes, absolutely. The ABC test is a test that for uh, determining who is an employee and who is an independent contractor under whichever law it's written into. And it's as basically it's as simple as it sounds. There's three prongs, A, B, and C, and you have to satisfy all of them um, to still count as an independent contractor, which switches the usual presumption um, from being sort of a jump ball between whether you're an independent contractor or an employee to under the ABC test, it's presumed that you're an employee and you have to satisfy the three prongs to be an independent contractor. And uh, under the ABC test, the A prong is that you have to be free from the company's control. E says uh, you have to be doing work that isn't central to the company's business. And the C prong says you're an independent business in that industry. So for somebody like me, who is an independent journalist, often it's the B prong, right? That is the problem for freelance writers because Mm -hmm. we are doing something that is very central to the company's business most of the time. Right. What would this categorization be used for under the PRO Act? So the PRO Act, the Protecting Right to Organize Act, which just passed the House, uh, it only amends the National Labor Relations Act and uh, its own amendments. Uh, It doesn't change uh, per se who is an employee or independent contractor, but it creates a test that uh, would instruct the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, on what analysis they're supposed to use to determine who is an who is a uh, employee and who is an independent contractor. And this is important because Section Seven of the NLRA is what affords workers the rights to uh, engage in concerted activities for mutual aid or protection. Things like strikes, collective bargaining, something as simple as uh, talking about pay with your coworkers, even though if your employer is not wanting you to. Um, and the NLRA only applies to employees. So it is important to determine who gets those rights under Section 7. Um, the current test that the board uses is what we would call a common law test. It's something that's derived from generally hundreds of years of passed down employment standards Um, which has kind of coalesced into what courts use is a multi-factor test that they weigh. Um, And this is different than the prongs that we were talking about earlier in the ABC test, because the ABC test says you have to satisfy all of those prongs, while the the common law test basically gives courts free range to weigh the factors in whichever way uh, they believe, and it can be pretty inconsistent. Um, which ones that they think will determine uh, who is an employee and who is an independent contractor. And unfortunately, um, these tests have grown larger and uh, harder to uh, pinpoint over the years. Um, Something like the IRS test, which I've seen some people try and advocate for, uh, has uh, under IRS uh, guidelines, it has over 20 factors that they can weigh. And what that allows is for uh, agencies such as the NLRB, it gives people who it gives certain, certain Republican appointees um, a lot more freedom to basically do whatever they want with the law, such as uh, Peter Robb, the former general counsel of the NLRB under Trump, um, used it to say that Uber drivers are not employees, which goes against what many activists and many scholars believe uh, is correct under uh, employment classification. Right. And so the fear that's happening among freelance writers on this issue comes from California's AB5, which was targeting companies like Uber, right? And But it also had specific provisions and limits for freelance writers built into it that I think are getting confused with the ABC test. Can you explain a little bit about what AB5 said? 
Sure. And uh, I think it's important to remember that the uh, the California issue didn't start with AB5. Um, California started with a Supreme Court case, California Supreme Court case called Dynamex, which uh, the those justices determined that this is the correct employment standard under uh, under employment law, which is the AB uh, now known as the ABC test. Um, so really, it, I, I feel like AB5 uh, gets treated as sort of the harbinger of like all of this doom upon the industries there that were affected. But AB5, what, uh, under Dynamex, um, there were no exemptions. That was just the law. And anybody who tried to test that in court would have probably been ruled an employee. Uh, AB5 was, was the vehicle to trying to create these exemptions. And whether that succeeded or failed in certain uh, exemptions for certain industries is different than what the default would have been under the law, which is just you would have been um, an employee. And so the... I, the uh, exemption that the uh, that the California legislature uh, legislature created for uh, the journalism industry was that um, you could write up to thirty five articles for any one client and still be uh, able to be classified as an independent contractor. But if you wrote any more over that thirty five limit, uh, you would be determined a employee of uh, that client. But under the Dynamex uh, uh, case. Without any intervention from AB5, it would have been zero articles. So I see a lot of uh, sort of frustration and even malice thrown towards uh, AB5 and the, the politicians who were leading that charge. But the the, the issue was was pushed and uh, emerged from judicial decisions. It wasn't really the legislature that was just creating that out of thin cloth. So what's the difference between the ABC test as applied to um, unionization rights, basically, and collective action under the PRO Act, um, as opposed to the broader question under Dynamex and under AB5? Right. And I think I forgot to elaborate that on your last question is the the ABC test in California was dealing with wage and hour law. So whether uh, employees, regardless, had nothing to do with unionization per se, had to deal with... um, whether employees classified for certain benefits. And this was what the independent contractors we see who have a lot of issues with the law are really worried about. Um, this determines, you know, things like tax status, tax filing. Um, the ABC test under the PRO Act is completely, solely, only focused on the NLRA and who gets those Section 7 rights I spoke about earlier uh, to engage in collective bargaining, to be able to file unfair labor practice charges to the NLRB. This is important because um, under antitrust law, there's a labor exemption for those who count as employees for collective bargaining purposes. Because otherwise, antitrust law can be read pretty broadly to count what a lot of unions engage in in, negotiate, in negotiating with employers as price fixing. But that labor exemption is written into the law for many decades ago to try and balance that and allow unions free range to negotiate for their members. But the act is very clear that it's only for the purpose of uh, collective bargaining rights. There's not some spillover effect into other laws. I've seen a lot of confusion on this. Um, There is not just because the the NLRB hands down a decision saying, uh, for instance, some truck drivers or construction workers, journalists, somebody else are now employees for Section 7 purposes. That does not mean the IRS or any other federal agency automatically, uh, it, it doesn't mean that they pluck that ruling from the NLRB and automatically apply it for their own purposes. Uh, unless they have the ABC test or something else uh, directing them to do so under their own legislation, 
the PRO Act will be sort of confined to its own purposes. I want to stress that the ABC test, it, it really comports with um, the NLRA and its statutory uh, mission because um, the NLRA says in its very first section that it is the uh, official economic policy of the United States government to encourage collective bargaining. And if collective bargaining can only be afforded to employees under the law, um, then there should be this presumption that the NLRA covers as many people as possible. So honestly, the, the law should be tipped in favor. They should be presumed that you're an employee for collective bargaining purposes only. Um, and it should be presumed that you have the right to band together with your coworkers and be able to negotiate uh, rates of pay, hours, benefits, whatever, above whatever your employer wants to unilaterally give you. So, yeah, I mean, there are in California, in fact, because um, this is where Hollywood is, that there are lots of organizations that do involve people who are not, who are, you know, in some ways freelancers who still have collective bargaining rights. And that hasn't changed their freedom, I guess, under the law. Right. There's a lot of examples in uh, you know labor industries where um, you know employees don't all work under same one same roof. They may create some sort of employment mechanisms that allow them to maintain their collective bargaining rights while still being uh, very uh, portable between you know their clients, employers, whatever. I mean, I think the the, the most obvious example is hiring halls um, in the construction industry, longshore, whatever, um, where you're not working for one employer. You might have 10, 20, 30 over a given year and uh, you can go and those are each one of those will count as your employer. But what's important is that you're keeping your benefits and your collective bargaining rights. Yeah, which is something that I've written about elsewhere as a potential model for journalism going forward. Anyway, um, so why do you think, to wrap this up, why do you think this is the issue that people are really whipping up fears around right now? Uh, well, I think, I think the California example um, is fresh in people's minds. Um, it's sort of seen it's, it's, and there's, no, it's not just, you know, like individual workers who are concerned about this. It's, um, it's a multi hundred million dollar industry being uh, created right now by Uber and Lyft and other gig economy employers. Um, who are trying to whip up a frenzy about this law because they view it as sort of existential to their business model of, of let's be honest, just basically being able to avoid labor laws um, to run as small as or to run as small as labor costs as possible. Um, but and I, I, I don't even like this this phrase misclassification because it almost sounds like it's an accident. You know, like misclass, like, oh, I, I, I misclassified you. I apologize. I mean, really, in terms of uh union avoidance, it's basically synonymous. Um, you see employers like FedEx, who their entire business model, the, the reason why uh, all those people, uh, all those drivers you see in FedEx trucks, the reason why they're considered business owners or in, you know independent contractors of FedEx is because they wanted to avoid the UPS uh, mass unionization that uh, United Parcel Service has. And you know they've litigated that issue for decades. And under the old common law standards, you uh, the common law a- uh, agency tests um, they were able, uh, very, uh, very successfully whenever a Republican administration came in and changed the appointment, uh, appointees, uh, they were able to escape, uh, employee status for, uh, their drivers. 
something important to point out, which I see is also being uh, sort of steamrolled over in uh, any analysis that I see in the mainstream, is that you can only avail yourself of these rights under the NLRA by you yourself or a coworker going to the NLRB and filing an unfair labor practice charge or a petition for an election. Um, the NLRB doesn't just come to your workplace overnight after the ABC test is installed and say, you are now an employee. Uh, goodbye to your business model. Um, this is you know, how, you're, how it's going to be viewed from now on. You have to, the NLRB does not have the ability to go out and seek its own charges uh, that it thinks it may violate labor, labor law. Um, it can only process the charges that are brought to it. So unless, you know, for example, if, if, uh, 50, if over half of you, half of the people in, in, in your bargaining unit or your proposed bargaining unit want to form a union, then they will do so. But until that point, there is no risk that, your, that the independent contractor or employee uh, distinction is going to be uh, prevalent for your business model if you're an independent contractor. Excellent. So basically, um, me and Michelle could form a union. <laughs> yes, it's, it's two or more. The NLRA says uh, all you need is two. So Watch out, Descent. Michelle and I are going to unionize. <laughs> that was Brandon Magner, and you can subscribe to his newsletter. We will put a link at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. More than 3,000 graduate student workers are in strike at Columbia University. If it feels like deja vu, yes, a couple of years ago, we reported on a very similar labor clash between the graduate student workers' newly formed union and an intransigent administration that refused to negotiate with the union. And it's happening again. This time, the graduate workers who are affiliated with the United Auto Workers are facing a similar conflict with the administration, this time in the middle of contract negotiations that have reached an impasse. The talks are stuck on several key provisions – as well as a general philosophical conflict over the extent to which student workers deserve to be treated the same as other unionized employees on campus, as opposed to mere students. Now the graduate workers are going on an indefinite work stoppage. That's in contrast to the strike of spring of 2018, which was a pre-planned week-long event. The key sticking points involve salaries, which workers to include in the bargaining unit, and the university's policies for dealing with sexual harassment. The strike comes at an opportune time for student worker unions, actually. Under the Trump administration, the National Labor Relations Board had pushed a rule change that would have stripped private university student workers of collective bargaining rights, effectively undoing an important precedent in a National Labor Relations Board case that had been brought by Columbia student workers under Obama. The Obama National Labor Relations Board had affirmed their collective bargaining rights. So the Biden administration is returning to that precedent and recently withdrew the Trump administration's rule. So now the law of the land is that student teaching fellows, research assistants, and other workers on private college campuses are now able to form unions and collectively bargain. It's a bit ironic that this vindication of the board comes just as the union at the center of that case is exercising its hard-won right to strike that seems to refuse to fully acknowledge that they are workers. I spoke with Sarah Luda Ludwig, a doctoral student in the Department of Earth and Environmental Science, about what the strike means for her and for the student worker movement as a whole. Yeah, so we've uh, been bargaining for over two years now. And in the beginning of bargaining, it was, it was really quite slow. We had a lot of difficulties getting Columbia to uh, bargain seriously with us. And, and obviously, that's an improvement over uh, earlier when they weren't even recognizing our union. Um, but it, it's it's taken way too long to get to this point. And, and the point that we're at now is that 
the last uh, few months, um, pretty much since about September, we have actually been able to bargain in earnest for for the first time since bargaining started. And that was that was great. We made a lot of progress on a lot of parts of our contract. And we have a lot of things that we are in agreement with with Columbia, uh, parts of our contract that we are proud of that are going to be good protections for graduate workers. Um, the problem is, is that there's a few open issues that Columbia is refusing to move on, and they happen to be the open issues that are the most important to everyone in our union. And uh, negotiations have come to the point where they've stalled. So uh, we had to make the tough decision to go on strike, and, and we really hoped that we'd be able to reach an agreement before we got to this point, but we don't see ourselves as having many other options left at this point. Can you walk us through what the maybe the, the top couple of issues are? What are the sticking points? Yeah, absolutely. So the the number one issue in, in my mind is that Columbia is refusing to allow us to enforce protections for uh, discrimination and, and harassment through our contract. So this is a, a pretty standard part of most union contracts. You have uh, behavior that's um, defined as inappropriate and it's prohibited. And if that happens, if somebody is harassed or discriminated against, um, they they can go uh, through a grievance and arbitration procedure to try to get help for their hostile work environment. And um, every other union at Columbia has this kind of agreement in place, um, but they're trying to exclude us from the same protections. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've agreed to the same kinds of inappropriate behavior that we have. They agree that discrimination and harassment is a big problem, especially um, one that graduate students face at Columbia, but they're they're not willing to consider this as a possible solution. And for us, it's a really big deal because uh, we are in a circumstance now where when we have a, a complaint of discrimination or harassment, it's our own employers that we have to take the complaint to, and they have uh, they hire the, their own investigators, and then the the people who judge our complaints are their own faculty and people in the provost's office and the ones who decide what punishments may or may not be meted out are their own deans and chairs of departments and so forth. So we we don't have the protections from our employers when our own employer is the um, judge and jury in these situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Currently, uh, someone goes through that, uh, the traditional uh, system, and they are not satisfied with the outcome. There's nothing uh, they, they can do. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I I know that you know discrimination and harassment was one of the main reasons that people were seeking a union mm-hmm. right, in the first yeah. place. So definitely, uh, it it was one of the main motivations, and it remains that way. Yeah. Um, a- any other uh, sticking points? Yeah. So one of the other big ones is that uh, Columbia is refusing to recognize our whole unit as it was certified by the NLRB, and this is is actually. Uh, in uh, conflict with the agreement they made when uh, we went on our last strike, they uh, agreed to a, a framework agreement where they said, we will recognize your whole unit as it was certified by the NLRB and bargain with you in good faith. Um, and they have not done that. They are trying to cut out a portion of our unit who are hourly workers that are classified as course assistants. And uh, this is not something that we find acceptable because a lot of these distinctions are kind of arbitrary from the administrative perspective. There's people who uh, can be, for example, on an appointment as a teaching assistant or 
hourly as a course assistant, and they have the same work duties, the same amount of hours that they work for the same total compensation at the end of the semester. And we're, we're not willing to exclude people. Yeah. And um, are there, uh, I, I know that in your uh, rebuttal to some of the administration's um, arguments, you were comparing, uh, you're comparing Columbia graduate workers to workers at for instance, NYU or um, yeah, NYU. yeah. So I've I've named the the non-economic sticking points, but of course the economics are some of it too. Uh, we're we're asking for comparable wages to NYU, for example, and uh, and Columbia's telling us that it, it's absurd that we want a wage increase during a pandemic, and and we're some of the lowest employed employees that they have, and the small wage increases we're asking for are a rounding error in their budgets. So our, our proposal is um, very reasonable and it's, uh, it feels a little insulting when they uh, tell us that we're not even in the right universe to be able to bargain with us. So they've, they've refused to put any changes in their economic proposals on the table for a while now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. There's, there's people who are, Columbia is offering them $32,000 a year to live in New York. And that's just, that's just not that much to live off of in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, certainly um, it's hard to justify uh, with Columbia's ginormous endowment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so what has it been like on the actual picket line? Is, is the situation at Columbia sort of still sort of partial shutdown or total shutdown? Like, are, are you just on campus picketing or are students around? Or uh, So it's a partial shutdown still. Uh, we have a picket line, but we also have a virtual picket line. So uh, the, the picket line that we had going today was um, really quite fun. It was great seeing people turn out, um, but it probably is a little different because we're in a pandemic. Um, and we have a lot of people that just aren't in, in New York and they're not able to be able to come pick it in person. So Yeah, yeah. Um, at least there are, uh, I guess, uh, fewer no students around, so they're not going to be crossing yeah. your picket line. The, the students have been great coming to our, our digital picket lines and other things. And the I think the undergrads have gone through such a tough year, too. And they yeah. uh, really understand a lot of the things that we're fighting for. And a lot of the undergrads are also in our in our unit as as teaching assistants and research assistants in their own right. So yeah, yeah. they've been great allies with us in this fight. I, I suppose this is sort of coincidental. Um, the NLRB recently uh, withdrew its rule, the rulemaking that mm-hmm. attempted to um, basically prohibit collective bargaining uh, among private uh, university workers, student workers. So um, what do you think about where the uh, graduate worker movement is uh, in the, in the, in, I guess, in the entire U.S. today? Um, And how do you feel about um, the role that the Columbia Graduate Workers Union has played in that? Well, when, when we, one, the right to have our, our union recognized from the NLRB, it opened, it opened doors for a lot of other private university graduate unions. And some of those have formed and won contracts in the meantime, and we're still fighting for ours. So we, we hope to join them among their ranks. But with the NLRB being so hostile to grad unions the last few years, there were um, quite a few uh, private university grad unions that had um, 
bids for recognition that they had to withdraw because they didn't want their case to come before the NLRB and let them um, choose to to overrule the Columbia decision. And and that that took a lot of solidarity for them to do that. Um, so I really hope that uh, they're probably feeling the most relief and the most excitement about being able to move forward and have the, the legal tools that they should to be able to stand up for their recognition for their union. That was Sarah Luda Ludwig, a Columbia doctoral student who is currently on strike. We learned recently that strike numbers last year were, well, depressingly low. But one place where there have been plenty of strikes lately is among nurses' unions. Nurses, of course, have been on the front lines of the last year of pandemic. And in many cases, they have had enough with lean health care, the demands to do more with less, and market-based medicine. At St. Vincent's Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, the longest nurses' strike in two decades in the state is ongoing, a somewhat rare open-ended nurses' strike. St. Vincent is one of the state's few for-profit hospitals owned by Dallas-based Tenet Healthcare. The strike began on March 8th. A report by the New York Times last summer found that Tenet was one of several hospitals getting millions in CARES Act funding and, quote, collectively sitting on tens of billions of dollars of cash reserves that are supposed to help them weather an unanticipated storm. The Times reported, quote, the for-profit hospital giant Tenet Healthcare, which has received $345 million in taxpayer assistance since April, has furloughed roughly 11,000 workers, citing the financial pressures from the pandemic. The company's chief executive, Ron Rittenmeyer, told analysts in May that he would donate half of his salary for six months to a fund set up to assist those furloughed workers. But Mr. Rittenmeyer's salary last year was a small fraction of his $24 million pay package, which consists largely of stock options and bonuses, securities filings show. In total, he will wind up donating roughly $375,000 to the fund, equivalent to about 1.5% of his total pay last year, end quote. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative James P. McGovern visited the picket line outside the Worcester Hospital Friday afternoon. Boston City Council members, including Lydia Edwards, spoke in support of the nurses as well. Edwards said the hospital is deciding, quote, based on profit margins, what the patient limits should be. Replacement nurses are staffing the hospital while the strike is ongoing. According to the Boston Globe, Teamsters Local 170, which represents 250 technicians at the hospital, alleged that its members were being asked to do work outside their normal duties to aid replacement nurses. Teamsters Secretary-Treasurer Shannon R. George said that one member had been fired for correcting an error by a replacement nurse who took offense. The union is seeking a limit of four patients per nurse, additional support staff, an increase in the number of nurses and patient observers in the emergency department, and a cadre of critical care nurses to look after patients waiting for admission to the intensive care unit. The unit state, uh, the union statement on the strike says, quote, we have been trying for more than two years to convince our employer, Dallas-based Tenet Healthcare, to provide desperately needed improvement to staffing and patient care conditions at our hospital, conditions that have only been made worse during the pandemic. 
In the last year alone, nurses have filed more than 500 official unsafe staffing reports where they informed management in real time that patient care conditions jeopardize the safety of their patients. Our nurses report experiencing an increase in patient falls, an increase in patients suffering from preventable bed sores, potentially dangerous delays in patients receiving needed medications and other treatments, all due to lack of appropriate staffing, excessive patient assignments, and cuts to valuable support staff. As a result of these untenable conditions, more than 100 nurses have left the facility, many to UMass Memorial Medical Center in Worcester, which employs many of the staffing practices the nurses are attempting to establish through this negotiation. End quote. So as per usual, when nurses strike, they are striking for patient care conditions. And, well, you know how this goes, right? They get called selfish for trying to improve the conditions where they work, which are the conditions, of course, that they care for sick people under. We are tracking nurses and healthcare workers strikes. So if you are listening and you've been involved in a job action this year at a hospital or healthcare facility, get in touch. Belabored at DescentMagazine.org. March 8th was International Women's Day, a day with its roots in radical labor organizing. And in that spirit, this week we invited Joe Grady, the General Secretary of the University and College Union in the United Kingdom, to be our guest for this episode. Longtime listeners have heard my reporting from the UCU's last couple of national strike actions, and since the pandemic, the UCU has stepped up its fight for safe and secure working conditions. We talk with Joe about building a feminist labor movement, her union's fight for equitable pay and treatment, the attempts to force educators back into the classroom, cuts to universities, and perhaps most importantly, labor's role in fighting a draconian policing bill put forward by the conservatives this week in Parliament and in the movement to fight police violence more broadly. So, hi. Um, To start off with, I wanted to ask you about your recent article in Tribune about the need for a feminist trade union movement. There's a tendency in some quarters to say that unions should only deal with bread and butter issues or, quote, universal issues, but your piece makes a strong case otherwise. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about why you call for a feminist understanding of labor organizing? Yes. Um, So my whole kind of philosophy on organising is um, there are obviously industrial issues that are kind of workplace based. And I think the remit of trade unions and particularly the legislation in the UK, and I know it's the same in other countries, really tries to compel unions to just focus on those issues. You know, in the UK, it's actually not possible to ballot on more kind of societal issues, whereas The whole point, I think, of feminism is taking social reproduction, is taking what happens outside of that productive economic sphere as part of our day-to-day struggle. Um, And, you know, my fundamental view is if we were to create trade unions from scratch now, we would not create them in the model that they are. Um, So I, I have quite sort of firm views, really, that we are where we are. We do have the structures that we have um, and simply creating more elected seats at what is essentially quite a a male patriarchal heteronormative table is insufficient and um the the i speak about a lot of things in that tribute piece but one of the things that i talk about is sexual violence 
Um, and uh, when I ran for general secretary of UCU in 2019, I spoke out a lot about sexual harassment and violence, not just of women, but of you know non-binary, trans, LGBTQ plus people, and actually how being accountable to survivors, making sure that our unions are safe spaces is fundamentally important if we want to build movements that are fully inclusive and that can actually take on employers. And um, we, we, we've started doing all manner of things in UCU, which I'm, I'm kind of happy to talk about more. But um, yeah, in answer to your question, I just think we have to really look at what we do and what we're trying to achieve. And unions help us in some ways, but hinder us in others. Yeah, in that piece, not to put any particular union on blast, but you did note that there have been problems within some of them around sexual harassment, which is, again, not easy to bring up. But why is it necessary to be honest about such problems when they happen within unions? Yeah, so I I did think long and hard about about naming names. But the point is, is that in the UK, there has been a huge amount of publicity about that case. Um, And I think far too often when it comes to sexual harassment and violence, we go quiet and we sometimes feel somehow inculcated by other people's bad behaviours or we just lose our voice. The most important thing we can ever be, in my opinion, is accountable to survivors. Um, They are the voices that get silenced. They are the voices that don't get heard. They are the voices that don't have, you know, connections to get um, people saying sympathetic things about them in in pieces. And I think the very least um, women, female leaders of of trade unions can do when they have a platform is unashamedly and unapologetically be the voice of survivors. Because if we cannot find the strength um, within us in those moments to actually be accountable to them and try and create safe movements we're not actually doing what we say we stand for at all. Um, and I feel incredibly passionately about that. You pegged your essay, the essay in Tribune around International Women's Day, um, which is, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're shocked to hear, not a huge holiday here in the US. But um, I was wondering whether you feel that uh, it's important to uh, to frame a lot of these struggles around gender equality and feminism in an international context or an internationalist context? Um, and why do you think some of the uh, you know most notable sort of uh, movements and campaigns that we've had around gender equality in recent years, like Me Too, have taken on kind of an international valence? It's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I think I, I can kind of answer this from a UK perspective, because I think in the UK, we currently have a, a lot of problems. Um, we have quite a um, vocal sort of white feminist movement, actually, that um, is not very inclusive, that I think is kind of comfortable talking about colonialism um, and decolonization within you know certain parameters, um, but also can be at the same time very exclusionary of trans and non-binary people. So I think in the UK, there is a bit like the employees that we represent in higher education, a a desire to be seen as international, but actually um, international on your terms. Um, So I think for me, the challenge really of being a feminist, and particularly, you know, I'm I'm a white woman um, in, in the UK is being really 
clear and critical of your own practice and the things that you say, because, you know, I'm really aware of my background and where I come from and that the sort of education, even though you you try um, to think outside of the kind of the parameters and frameworks that are set with you in your your education, that you don't and that actually learning about gender depression and the structures that the UK has set around the world and what that means is really important. Um, and again, I think that in the UK, our political parties don't do any of that work for us anymore. The education system in the UK is incredibly neoliberal. There is a real role for trade unions and um, movements within trade unions and trade unions to work with other feminist movements to do those things. Um, and I think that's really important too. How do you think uh, women would design the trade union movement uh, right now if they had a clean slate to start with? <laughs> well, there's a few things, isn't there? And I think one is just sort of organizing spaces. So when do we organize? How do we organize? Um, how do we come together? How do we ensure access to organizing spaces, whether that is you know, through a, a lens of social reproduction, making organizing spaces accessible, um, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, the, the movement, as much as I think sometimes it pays lip service or some unions really do try to be accessible, they sort of don't. Um, in the UK, a lot of our unions are kind of even the democratic structures, again, are very heteronormative based on, you know, do you have a regularised working pattern? Can you dedicate two years of your life to run for this committee and be involved in it several hours a week? Um, and then there's a credentialism around who gets elected to these positions and who is seen as a safe pair of hands to be in those positions. And more often than not, you know, it is white men that elbow their way to the front and get elected. And, and then they dictate the agenda of what we prioritise our union should be about. So everything seems horizontal. Everything seems democratic and lovely. But hardwired into it is the preference for certain types of people, but also people's ability to participate. And I don't think any union that I'm really aware of in the UK has really got to grips with that. And, you know, I would include UCU, so I'm, I'm sort of not pointing fingers, um, but it's a problem. Recently in UCU, we um, one of the things that I, I, I pledged when I ran for GS was to establish member-led task groups. We established our first one last year. It's a task group on sexual violence and how we eradicate sexual violence from our sectors. It has 12 people and a chair. Um, we had more people apply to be on this task group than we have for any election we've ever run. There was like over 110, 115 people ran, um, mostly women, some trans and non-binary people, people who uh, you know, has said that they have disabilities and they've wanted to get involved in our union for years, but they've never found any of the spaces welcoming. And they really were grateful that we had created, and we we put the effort in, so it was good for us to hear it, that we had created um, a calling notice for people to be involved um, that really made it clear that we were going to ensure that this was a space people could participate in. That group is due to conclude soon. It has actually been operating under a kind of a confidentiality because actually we felt, or the group voted for themselves, that they, they wanted to remain anonymous whilst the group was ongoing because unfortunately when you do research on sexual violence, sometimes actually you become the target. Um, and, you know, for me, this is actually a really interesting blueprint on how people who are really committed to our union but have felt excluded from getting involved in the traditional ways of organizing in our union are going to contribute something groundbreaking and not just groundbreaking for UCU, but potentially the movement in the UK more generally and hopefully internationally for other people.
But just one other thing, I think, you know, if we were to create these things from scratch, we, I think, and again, this is a UK problem, but you see it elsewhere. I think sometimes there's a real demoralizing sense that some of the things that we should care about, um, such as sex worker rights, are considered not counter-revolutionary enough by some people. Um, and that actually, you know, we should be focusing on anti-trade union legislation or austerity in the economy. But for women, they are fundamentally counter-revolutionary things to be involved with. And those conversations can sometimes get shut down in unions too. Your own union, of course, has put these questions of gendered inequality at the center of recent campaigns and even strike actions. Um, So can you talk about that issue and the way that it was in sort of the recent national strikes that you've led? Yeah, so UCU, um, it was last year now because this year has gone by in a blur. But um, Feels in, crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. From the very end of 2019 to um, March 2020, UCU was involved in um, national higher education strikes in the UK um, over a pay, uh, what on the surface was called a pay dispute, but it actually had several elements. And one of those elements was both gender and racialized pay gaps, but specifically how they also intersect with each other um, and casualization. So how certain people, you know, are kind of kept out of the academy, how pay gaps sustain inequalities between um, individuals, um, how research is prioritized, you know, how the whole system is kind of stacked. Um, so it, it, it was about pay, um, but it was also about recognizing those types of inequalities in HE and how they actually really overlap and, you know, sustain um, essentially a kind of a white supremacist researching and teaching agenda in education. Um, and we, you know, the, the strike action that UC members poured their heart and soul into was amazing. Um, it hasn't produced the results that we would want it to. Um, UK higher education employers are ruthless. Um, you know, they pay a lot of lip service to wanting to close these gaps, to um, working on gender pay initiatives, to decolonizing their curriculum. But when you look at who is on casualized contracts, who is doing, you know, the kind of the legwork in universities, it is exactly the sorts of people that they are saying that their agendas want to help and lift up. Um, so we've still got a long way to go. We are still campaigning and organizing on all these issues. Uh, locally, we have been making gains, um, but nationally, it's going to take another huge um, dispute at some point in the future to really shift HE employers and get the kind of sector defining movement that not only we we want, but we need and ultimately people deserve. You know, I just realized that I think the last picket line I was on was that last strike last spring. Just before lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, just before lockdown. I went down to Greenwich with a couple of friends who worked there. And so, yeah, um, that was a thing. Um, So recently, um, we had a pretty funny experience when the Daily Mail used a selfie you took reading my book (laughs) to illustrate a hit piece on you. Um, But the article was actually relevant to our conversation because it was about the fight over resuming in-person teaching and doing so safely. Um, So our listeners in the US are obviously familiar with this, but can you tell us a little bit about that fight um, in the UK? I can, but first of all, I just want to laugh at that because we always joke with the Daily Mail because they've done a few of these hit pieces and they always use a really frivolous selfie 
And we always laugh when you see you that you kind of got like give the hot content for like the racist horny dads. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely you were part of that. Sarah's book is like catnip for right wing commentators. Catnip, yeah. Well, and you know, Joe matched her lipstick to my book cover, so obviously I, I it was delicious. Yeah, the, the, the horny racist dads need content too. But um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, so we we. Um, Again, so last year we in the UK, just for context, the the government they they instructed universities to close for the first lockdown. So there wasn't a big fight, if you like, over keeping our members safe at least during the in person. I'm not saying it was perfect across the the UK, but um, where there was local problems, we were able to sort of jump on them quite quickly. And nationally, things were relatively okay. But we knew that come August and September, when universities reopened in person, obviously they never closed, there was going to be huge problems. We were predicting this from August onwards. We Unfortunately, we called it right. We saw, you know, much like what happened in the US, cases of COVID skyrocket. Um, So we read, we led um, an incredibly aggressive campaign throughout the autumn. Um, A lot of universities um, did go online, either because there was local lockdowns or because of pressure from UCU branches. UCU was the first union in the UK to run a health and safety COVID ballot and win of any unions. We've had several unions who have done it since. What that ballot means isn't that members necessarily withdraw their labour and go on strike. But in the UK, you can do something called action short of a strike where you can choose to work from home remotely as part of your action short of a strike. So essentially, the branches that have taken these ballots are all now working from home if they want to, even if the university said they're continuing in-person teaching. So we've basically kind of assembled an armory of different tactics, depending on what is needed on the ground, to allow members who have wanted to continue working from home and branches to do that, or to extract concessions from their employers that they think satisfy their own feelings about how safe an in-person return is. But we, the campaigning that we did in, in the autumn and winter essentially led to the government conceding that universities had to stay online until the 8th of March, but actually until after Easter. So even though September to November was a struggle, um, it really paid dividends in how seriously the government took our ability to to take action and, and essentially demand what they wouldn't give us anyway. And we also, not that I think the law is a solution necessarily to industrial struggles, but we also took out a judicial review against the government for not following the government's own scientific advisors. So we really pinned some movement at them on a number of fronts. And there are still UCU branches running COVID health and safety ballots now so that we know that we can use that to carry out the work online if we think we need to. Yeah, so you also in this moment um, have a lot of fights going on around redundancies at some of these universities. Um, I know there's a bunch of them, so I don't expect you to sort of give us the deep details on all of it. But can you give us a little bit of an overview of what's happening at some of these places? Yeah, so um, COVID has been difficult, obviously, um, for for a number of reasons and redundancies in universities, even though student numbers have remained very high, universities have tried to continue with redundancies regardless. We have seen some really impressive pushbacks. So Harriet Watt, to give you an example, that's a, a university in Scotland, wanted to make huge numbers of staff redundant. 
they ran an industrial action ballot. They they made their ballot threshold in the UK. I think they got nearly 70% of members to participate in that ballot. They threatened the employer with an academic boycott, which is a huge censure mechanism in the UK. And eventually, you know, the employer just was not up for the fight. Our members put up too much of a fight that they backed down. Um, we've got similar redundancy rounds happening at Leicester at the moment, and that branch is moving to an industrial action ballot. The university have already rolled back on some of those redundancies, um, but I, you know, I expect Leicester to play this out like Harriet Watt did. Um, it's incredibly difficult because this isn't, you know, universities will say this is what they financially need to do. It's not. It's a business model. It's a choice. You know, it's a tool to intensify the workload of people who are there. And we, you know, we've worked so hard with the UCU members and our, our members are excellent. You know, they know, they can see what this is on the ground. And also the action that we've been taking part in since 2018, students on the ground are completely supportive of their staff, not just their academic staff, but the staff more broadly at universities. And they know that staff working conditions are their learning conditions. Um, so there's a real sense of solidarity on campus. I don't know if you've just seen, but at the University of Manchester, Nancy Rothwell has just been no confidence by the student union there. They held a, a referendum um, with a really good turnout. And, and there's been a real coming together, not just over the last three years, but particularly the last 12 months, because part of our health and safety campaign wasn't just about keeping staff safe. It was about students who were locked up in accommodation with, um, you know, exploitative kind of um, extortionate regime selling them food, um, poor mental health provision. And I think that people have really realised that UCU is the guardian of staff and students and university communities. And, and it's really lifted the lid and exposed that kind of rotten market culture that we know exists in universities, but even more people know it does now. Here in the US, um, and I'm speaking as uh, as an instructor at a local university as well, um, and uh, and having just observed the K twelve system um, over time, it seems like there's uh, a lot of um, there's a lot of political contention around the issue of school reopening and when it's ethical or safe to reopen. Um, in some ways, it's uh, often pitted uh, educator unions uh, against um, a certain segment of parents. Um, and I was wondering how the debate around that is playing out in the UK. Um, I understand that maybe the, the school lockdowns uh, didn't work quite the same way um, over there as they did here. But um, what's been sort of the public conversation around um, reopening schools safely in terms of, um, you know, students, families, teachers, and, you know, the communities that yeah. depend on schools? Yeah. Yeah, just very quickly before I answer schools, from our perspective with universities and colleges, we had nothing but incredibly positive feedback from members of the public. As a general secretary, when I normally get emails from members of the public, they're not they're not good. <laughs> but we we generally got a lot of positive feedback saying thank you for standing up for students. I think with schools, um, again, our government, which maybe you are aware of this in America, has handled COVID disastrously, uh, murderously. Um, and I think for a lot of parents, um, that school reopening, so there was a big rumble that the government wanted to kind of create with the NEU, which is one of the main school unions in the UK at the very beginning of this year. Um, lots of parents were not 
pro schools reopening. They didn't necessarily want to be stuck at home in lockdown doing homeschooling, um, but there was such a sense of feeling by January that things were out of control, that it was dangerous. Basically, schools were so unsafe that they were called bubbles here. I don't know if it was the same for you, but the, the bubble of a classroom um, they were being penetrated so often by people kind of coming into them with COVID that everybody was being taught from home and then being forced to go back in and in and out. And um, it just became a nightmare, I think, for anybody to actually plan their lives. So by the end of it, my feeling is that actually a, a lot of parents just saw sense in staying at home until it was safe, even if personally they wanted things to be different. So I actually think that the government lost the general public on schools reopening because of their own incompetence. And I think as well, the NEU in particular really understood and were in touch with the public. And I think that's one of the reasons why their campaign, at least in January, was so nationally um, popular because they were in tune with the public. So to zoom out a little bit, um, here in the U.S., uh, there's currently an ongoing debate around legislation to overhaul um, our labor and employment law, including how we do union elections, which, as you might know, is a pretty um, draconian, <laughs> restrictive and bureaucratic majoritarian system. And I think it works pretty differently in the UK. But we are having a, a discussion here about how to make unionization more accessible and um, expand extend labor rights and unionization rights to more types of workers, such as workers in the so-called gig economy. How is that conversation happening in the UK? And um, and I know that there have been, uh, there's been litigation as well as just broader public debate around, um, you know, sort of exclusions in labor laws and how to make labor law more inclusive. So um, how is that, how's that discussion unfolding there? Yeah, I mean, one of the, or I should say, the the progress that's been made in this um, arena in the UK is mainly being made by unions backing a group of workers who have experienced the detrimental effects of not being included in a certain piece of labour law to the courts and winning and therefore setting a kind of a, a landmark case that then should apply to other workers. And then the company, whether that's Uber or, you know, whoever, then being compelled to offer the extension of paid holiday leave or whatever the thing may be. Um, so the the gains that have been won, and there have been quite a few in the last few years, have mainly been on the basis of unions taking legal action. Um, you know, we have a conservative government that absolutely appalls trade unions and the labour movement. And, you know, we'll be doing everything possible to to make it difficult for us. We've just seen the second passing of a bill, for instance, um, through through the House of Commons yesterday that is intended to make um, to criminalise if you are part of a protest that is a nuisance, an extreme nuisance. Um, so, you know, you can imagine what that does to people's confidence to take part in, in action and, you know, how that could extend to picket lines and to other types of industrial struggle. So if your protest isn't a nuisance, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> Quite. I mean, just to put it in context, they, they want to in, introduce a potentially up to 10 years in prison for, for damaging a statue. So this isn't just like absurd criminalization. This is kind of culture war shit as well. You know, they are 
they are really pushing the dial of fascism in the UK. Um, we have had huge um, protests over the weekend just now in the UK, not just around this particular piece of legislation, though it was linked to it, but about police brutality. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of in a dark place, um, but I fundamentally am somewhat um, optimistic that we have fight within us to, you know, not just sort of let this play out how they want it to. Yeah, I was going to sort of wrap up by asking you about that policing reform bill and the police officer suspected of murdering Sarah Everard, these um, protests that we saw um, that, you know, in the U.S., it's been quite hard to get union leadership in many cases to speak out against police violence. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why it matters for unions and union leadership to be um, critical, not only of when, you know, sort of one bad apple cop commits murder, but the broader restrictiveness of the police in general and their role in hindering, as you were saying, union action. Yeah. I guess there's sort of two answers to this question. So if, if you'll indulge me with the first one, is that um, for me, being a general secretary, it returns back to the first question you asked. It's not just about organising an industrial worker. It's about organising the whole person. And, you know, for many people, they don't trust the police. Thinking the police will protect you is a privilege. Um, I grew up in, you know, I was born in 1984. I grew up in a mining community um I don't I don't trust the police um and I'm you know a, a sort of white blonde girl um who under normal circumstances you know the police might seek to protect um so I think it's a really important lesson for your members who maybe have not grown up with suspicion of police or members who have not grown up where you know there's a, a police van at the bottom of the street every day stop and searching kids and therefore instilling into you never to trust the police and actually who the police serve. That's an important lesson to actually educate people about and to be really crystal clear that the police are not protectors, but they are actually uphold the law. And those two things are very different. And people need to know that. And if they haven't had a moment of politicization where that has become apparent to them, and for some people, for some women in the UK last weekend, that was being manhandled by the police at a vigil for a woman who it is suspected was murdered by a policeman. So, yeah, if you've got a platform, I think it's really important you use it to make that clear. I think the second point about this this police bill is, as I said, it it, it will have direct consequences for trade unions. You know, I don't see it as a zero-sum game that we should only care about it because of that, but that is quite important. And in the UK in 2016, um, there was a trade union act that was introduced that had a whole raft of legislation, which makes it more difficult now to ballot for action and, and what have you. And part of that bill initially had huge crackdowns on social movements and the right to protest. And it was trade unions that were able to get a lot of that stuff removed by lobbying hard. This is the government under the guise of COVID and protecting people, in particular protecting women, um, saying that they need extra powers. And I think it's really important that people like me um, and other people really lay bare the dangers with this um, and really speak quite honestly about what police powers mean um, for everyone um, and what they have meant in particular um, for communities that they seek to police and criminalize even further. 
just one last question. Um, how has the pandemic changed your approach to organizing both in your union and maybe in, across the labor movement, the UK more generally? I mean, has, has the, have the lockdowns and the shutdowns of schools and all the other crisis crises that people have been dealing with, um, has it given you any insight in how to organize in the midst of a crisis? I don't know if it's necessarily given any insights or if it has, I'll probably think of them once we've stopped recording. But um, it has demonstrated that some people are just wrong when you think that you can't keep on organising, not in person. So we have continued running ballots all the way through the pandemic. I think there was a belief in UCU that you couldn't organise a ballot outside of term time and you couldn't organise a ballot if everybody wasn't in work filling them in. But one of the first things we did was changed everybody's ballot addresses to their home address. We've done loads of digital organizing and we've had in some places super increased turnout in our ballots. So I think it's um, provided almost a forced empirical experiment of challenging assumptions around organizing and how you actually do it. And I think in a way that might end up being quite democratizing because I think it takes sort of, um, specialized power or knowledge out of the hands of people who are like, well, I'm an organizer and you have to do it like this. Because for me, organizing is actually reaching out, communicating with people, understanding the hopes and fears of the, the groups that you're trying to work with and, and make alliances. And in some ways, I think the isolation of COVID and lockdown has really brought out the, the inner organizer in people and groups. And, you know, Sisters and Cup, who were behind the amazing demonstrations that we saw in the UK, um, every day, every day since the weekend, that that just happened, right? There wasn't some sort of. I mean, there is a bit of an organizer infrastructure that they were able to leverage upon, but it was also people reaching out and saying, I'm "Not fucking having this shit. I'm going down there. Like this is outrageous." And I think the challenge for for general secretaries and for trade unions and for other movements is to fuel that fire and use the structures and the resources that we have in place to see the importance of those social movements and not just say, well, I, you know, we do industrial relations and that isn't it. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Joe Grady, General Secretary of University and College Union in the UK. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but alas, did not write. My pick for this episode is by friend of the podcast, Kenzo Shibata. It's on his Substack, and it's called Anti-Asian, Anti-Sex Work, Hate Crimes, Don't Get a Congressional Hearing. It was written shortly after news broke of the massacre in Georgia, in which a white man went on a killing spree at three massage parlors, killing eight people, six of them of Asian descent. Many Asian American activists are calling it a racist attack, but as of this recording, local police have not formally labeled it a hate crime. Still, it's impossible to ignore the wider context here. Anti-Asian violence and harassment have surged over the past year, stoked by racial anxiety around the pandemic, the bigoted rhetoric of the Trump administration, and a general climate of xenophobia and hypernationalism. We don't know a lot about the circumstances of the Georgia shootings, 
But the fact that the shooter, a 21-year-old self-professed sex addict who stated that he saw massage parlors as a quote-unquote temptation, targeted workplaces that are commonly linked to sex work and which employed Asian immigrant women. It's clear that the confluence of race, gender, and sex made the victims vulnerable to this attack. It's important to recognize that massage parlors are important cultural symbols here. Because of the victims' ties to sex work, or at least the perception of sex work, they became an object of obsession as well as murder's hatred. Kenzo writes, quote, There is a moral panic around talking about sex worker issues as labor issues. The sex panic, employed by leaders on the left and right, obscure the bottom line on sex work. It's work. Eight people left their houses and went to work Tuesday and did not come home. Their workplaces were unsafe, and that is largely because they likely work in an underground economy that forces them to not fully engage with society. Sex workers have to live a life that is under constant surveillance. And for that, they often have to keep their work private, along with the host of labor issues that come along with it. There should have been no reason that an armed stranger could murder these people at work in cold blood, in some cases in broad daylight, unquote. So we should say that we don't know whether or not all six of the Asian victims here were actually engaged in sex work, but the Asian massage parlor with a brothel tucked inside is practically a pop cultural cliche, and clearly the killer was fixated on this. And the narrative is about more than how sex is marketed in this industry. It's also about labor, particularly the labor performed by a largely woman immigrant workforce, and how that affects the way society values or devalues their lives. Whether these particular victims were sex workers or not, they were engaged in a personal care industry where immigrant-owned businesses often operate on the margins in the crawl space between legitimate and illicit labor. Noting that the murders had prompted stepped-up police patrols in the area, Kenzo explains why adding police is exactly the wrong response. Quote, the situation in Atlanta will not improve for the massage parlor workers, who will now be surveilled and policed at a higher rate. Like I stated earlier, I'm not saying that these workers were indeed all sex workers, but that was Long's, that's the killer's name, perception and motivation, and this part of the discussion has already become the elephant in the room. Intersectionality means we look at the interconnected nature of social categorizations, such as race, class, and gender, as they apply to a given individual or group, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So how can we say that this killing spree has nothing to do with race, as the targets were part of a racialized workforce? We'll learn more in the coming days about who these women were. Their names deserve to be known. We should see them as full human beings with aspirations and families. As of this recording, most of them have remained coldly anonymous in the media accounts. Oversimplified and flattened narratives, pretty routine in both the legal system and the media. In New York City, many Asian immigrant sex workers have ended up getting roped into a special sex trafficking court, which purportedly aims to persuade women to leave the trade, but in many cases only further criminalizes women and fails to offer any viable alternative for those who actually desire to leave the trade. In 2017, Yang Sung, a sex worker in Flushing, Queens, became a case study in why the aggressive policing of sex work only creates more violence, stigma, and misery. She fell to her death during a police raid. Her body was targeted, criminalized, and eventually crumpled in a heap on a sidewalk in Flushing. Her death inspired the creation of Red Canary Song, an organization that aims to defend and empower migrant sex workers. Yet the criminalization and stigma of these workers continues. The pandemic has made life extraordinarily difficult for the Asian American community. The lockdowns have created the conditions for even more hostility and abuse against Asian Americans, particularly Asian American women. It's also made workers in gendered service industries, including but not limited to sex work, more prone to exploitation and violence. 
Maybe the massacre in Georgia could raise awareness of these issues of human rights and labor rights and how anti-Asian violence is bigger than Trump and intertwined with economic and gender oppression. Hopefully it will compel the Asian American community to grapple with its internal divides of class, ethnicity, and gender. But in America, mass shootings are sadly a pretty frequent occurrence, and I fear that this incident will soon fade from the headlines. Still, these murders might touch a nerve, since we're all grappling with mortality in new and profound ways these days. We all know no one's workplace should subject one to violence or cost one's life, no matter who they are or what job they do. But every day, in so many ways, we are all made to feel like we're not entitled to be safe at work. Long-time listeners know that in addition to being a regular contributor at The American Prospect, I am also a big fan of its editor, David Dayan, who has been a guest on this show in the past. And his article this week is no exception. Titled, How the Met Opera is Squeezing Its Workers, in this piece, Dave digs into the conditions of locked-out stagehands and other workers at New York City's Metropolitan Opera. I wanted to, but did not have space ultimately in my book to take on the question of music workers, and so I'm especially glad to talk about this piece today. Like many workers in the arts, the workers at the opera are expected to do those jobs out of love, devotion to the beauty of the opera, and love of the performance. Stagehands, of course, might love the opera, but they still need to get paid, as indeed do opera singers. And the pandemic, of course, has been hell on performers and also on those whose jobs involving making those performers look and sound good, ensuring their performances go smoothly. But the Met Opera is pressing those very workers who haven't worked in a year to make drastic cuts. Dave writes, quote, On March 12, 2020, the opera told every backstage worker to leave the building and no new performances have been conducted since then. In December, the Met locked out its stagehands after the IATSE Local 1 contract, which covers several hundred backstage workers, expired during the coronavirus lockdown and negotiations faltered. The Met is seeking an across-the-board 30% pay cut, plus cuts to overtime, sick and vacation pay, health insurance, and other benefits from workers who have not received a paycheck in an entire calendar year. The Met initially offered a $1,500 a week bridge payment in exchange for this pay cut, but as there has been no agreement, that payment has not been delivered. With talks not happening and vaccinations bringing us closer to a time when the Met can reopen, workers allege that management has begun to outsource set building to non-union shops in California and even overseas. Musicians have complained of the same tactics, using non-union orchestra musicians in some live-streamed concerts to replace furloughed union workers. It's a total move against working fairly with the unions, worker Teresa Gonzalez, a scenic industrial who works with painters and scenic artists, told Dave. She has been working at the Met for more than 20 years. Quote, people here are passionate about their craft and skills and passionate about the company, she said. The quality of what we do, generations from now, they are going to look back on it. And to have management that doesn't appreciate that fact is so disheartening, end quote. It is particularly ridiculous to learn that the Met is outsourcing those set designs across an ocean or across the country, 
Dave points out, quote, it's unclear precisely how much savings the Met would realize from outsourcing when you factor in having to ship giant sets across the country or over from Europe. Moreover, while the pandemic has eliminated all ticket sales, donations from the Met's elite band of supporters yielded $130 million in the fiscal year ending July 2020. Combined with not having to pay stagehands or talent and pay-per-view digital performances of music recitals, revenue which stagehands who built the backdrops do not share in, the opera was able to break even last year, despite months without live productions and 276 total cancellations. He continued, quote, because of the size of its staff, over 3,000, with an operating budget of over $300 million annually, the Met did not qualify for PPP small business relief. It has not said specifically whether it would attempt to secure a shuttered venue operators grant when they go live later this year, though General Manager Peter Gelb has said the organization would seek federal aid. The organization did slightly raise its line of credit by $11 million over the last fiscal year. And meanwhile, quote, the Mets stagehands, musicians and singers have received no assistance since the Opera House closed last year, save for an extension of pay to March 31st. That's last March 31st. Management invoked a force majeure clause in the union contract to enact furloughs without pay, though health insurance coverage has been maintained, end quote. Those same workers agreed to wage freezes and benefit cuts two years ago, and negotiations on a new contract began in July. They say they're willing to accept concessions again to get back to work, but 30% is a non-starter. The union has called for elected officials to prevent the Met from getting government aid while the workers are locked out, and wrote to the Ford Foundation, which is underwriting an upcoming show, asking it to urge the Met to reinstate the workers or withdraw funding. One of the stagehands said, Quote, I know, speaking for the shop, we just want we want to get back to work. We're a Met family. We do it for each other. We will raise our game. We just want Peter Gelb to raise his game. We would happily meet him halfway. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on nurses' strikes, the PRO Act, higher education workers, and other worker rebellions in the age of COVID-19. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, for sharing us with your friends, tweeting at us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It does help us to reach new listeners. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. If you don't have the spare money right now, we understand things are tough, but if you happen to have some money that you're not spending going out during a pandemic, uh, there are still some Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier, and you can always find out more or at descentmagazine.org slash belabored. We are doing a live virtual show on April 5th with Stephen Pitts of Black Work Talk podcast, discussing the Bessemer Amazon election and the state of the Black working class in America. That means we will be skipping the week of April 1st and we'll resume our normal schedule after the week of April 5th. And if you miss that live event, don't worry, there will be an edited version available as the podcast that week. You can find out more about this event as well at the Descent website. 
If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a teacher or a nurse, a university professor, or a street vendor, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.